0: Well, turn, if you would, once again to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. and We are, of course, working our way through Matthew on Sunday mornings. One of my great debates and dilemmas in preaching through any book is... How detailed to get, how much time to take with each concept or idea. I don't want to, to get so involved that, that we lose our ability to, to follow what's going on. There, there is a main point to a book and a main point to a passage. On the other hand, I don't want to just race over and miss what is obviously the rich, rich Word of God. So, we are dealing with Matthew 23. The harshest words that have yet come from the mouth of our Savior upon what ought to be to us a surprising group of people. Those are who are in possession of His very words, who treasure them, These are people who cherish the Word of God, at least that's what they say. Who are very concerned about fidelity to the Word of God, at least that's what they say. And who discover that rather than being approved by God, they are eviscerated by His words. And a passage like this, folks, really ought to be very arresting to us. And I I think that we would do ourselves a great disservice to think that Jesus is only picking on an ancient sect of people. What Jesus is really doing is unmasking Bible religion gone astray. He is... In in his expose, he is letting us know that just having a Bible and claiming allegiance to it does not guarantee his approval. And so we are then going to deal with this carefully. That's my intention. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And the section before us this morning somewhat arbitrarily is verses 13-15. through At verse number 13, Jesus begins to pronounce the woes upon these people. He has called them hypocrites. He has called them pretenders, play actors. He has said that they say the right things, but they do the wrong things. That is their great misstep. They say the right things. They do the wrong things. Verses 13, 14, and 15 this morning. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. And let's pray. Father, Father, I pray please for the help of Your Holy Spirit this day. These are the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, breathed out by Your Spirit. Our Savior has said nothing of Himself, but He speaks that which You authorize. There is then complete harmony among the Trinity that these are words we need to have spoken to us. Father, may we never, ever be guilty of hypocrisy You see all things. You know all things. We cannot hide anything from You. May we not pretend. Give us grace and courage to live faithfully for You. Bless this time together in Your Word this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Thank you.
1: night, have I awed in my face, while the storm howls above me, and there's no hiding place, mid the crowd.
0: We have we are then entering this morning that section where Jesus pronounces one of the more fascinating and interesting Bible words woe. It's one of those words that is more descriptive of how it sounds than of what it means. I mean the it's it's the It's a pronunciation of dismal doom and gloom. It's hard to define. It literally is more like a sound, like a groan coming out of the ancient mouth. And Jesus calls it down upon these men. He is, according to John chapter 5, the judge of all the earth in order to demonstrate His equality with the Father and His superiority over all men, according to John 5, the Father has vested all judgment in the Son. And we have then this morning just a little bit pulled back for us, just a brief glimpse into what the great day of judgment must be like as the wrath of God is pronounced And the knowledge of God about mankind is revealed. Jesus has oftentimes conversed with these men. He has sparred with them verbally about Bible texts and difficult meanings and interpretations of Scripture. There is none of that here. This is the declamation of one who knows intimately the human heart He's not I mean if I just walked up to somebody and pronounced them a hypocrite I I would be rendering a human judgment I don't have all information Jesus Christ knows everything Our common ground of starting must be that these men are indeed hypocrites for the reason that he explains And if you read ahead and I would ask you not to do that During the sermon, but you will discover that chapter six, or verse number sixteen, then deals with an entirely new segment of material that we will not get into today. Yet another reason, there are, in the course of these pronunciations, kind of themes that Jesus is developing. Ways in which their hypocrisy, their, their pretend religious devotion is exposed. I think that in this passage I'm going to treat it as and just say this not to stir up any trouble but because I know that there are some of you that study these things there there's some debate and discussion about the placement of verse number 14 within this passage we're going to deal with it as if it belongs there it is obviously a part of our king james bible it is valid as a statement, valid as a claim, the question is about the placement of it within Matthew 23. And so having said that, I would say to you, do not sweat it. I think verses 13, 14, and 15 all fit to argue the main point. And the main point is the denunciation of verse number 13. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men to get at the heart of that I would just throw out to you this question what is the main point of religion at all not just our religion but what ought to be the main point of any religion why, why are we here today And why will we do this again tonight? And why will we do this again Wednesday? And why will you teach your children this book at home? And why will you spend money seeing to it that they are educated in it in a school or in a homeschool setting? What's the point? What's it all about? And folks, if you look at the world around you, if you listen to people in our country, you would realize, I think very quickly, you may not have thought of it in these terms, but I think that you know what I'm about to say to you. I mean, when I say it, you go, that's exactly right. In the United States of America, the vast majority of people believe that the primary point of religion is to make people nicer people. And this is one of the reasons that religious fundamentalism is so bitterly hated because it doesn't contribute to the overall harmony of society that religion is supposed to embrace. Popular religion is religion that makes men more tolerant and less discriminatory. It makes men gentler and less mean. It is about more love and less hate. And that kind of religion will always have the acclaim of the masses. That's not the Bible picture. And by the way, I I would just propose to you that a misguided notion of what the main point of religion is, is one of the reasons... That church services rapidly across America are becoming nothing less than some variant form of entertainment. The main point of any religious practice according to the Bible is a preparation for the time when a man will meet God. It is instruction in right living. It is the correction and the expose of wrong living. It is the instruction of the right practice of right living so that when a man stands before his judge, he is ready for that moment. That's the main point. And if we fail to do that, we have missed the entire reason for our existence. My life will be judged by His standard. And if I am wise, if I am, as Peter said, we'll deal with it Wednesday night, if I am sober-minded, if I am in my right mind about this, I will expend my life's energy getting ready for that day. I will be a pastor that has in the the front of his mind that I'm going to answer for my ministry. I will be a husband that has in the front of his mind that I will answer for my activity and conduct at home. I will be a parent that will live with the knowledge that I am going to stand and give an account to the God who made not only me, but the entire universe. Notice what Jesus says the Pharisees are doing. They are shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men. They are closing it. Their primary job is to be preparing men to enter it. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees are obstacles. And of course, folks, we understand that a kingdom, any kingdom, whether it be an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom any kingdom is a is a sphere of government it is an area a geographical area ruled by a king the kingdom of heaven it's just that it is not a kingdom in heaven it is a kingdom whose origin is heaven we had of course family members in this weekend for the wedding. Some of them hadn't been here in some quite some time. And one of them said, when did they build that big thing on Dodge Street, that big towering overpass? And I said, well, they completed that in about 2008. And thank you very much, by the way. And they said, why do you say that? I said, because 80% of it was paid for by federal funds. The Dodge Street bypass was built on the authority of the government that is out of Washington, D.C. That's my point. The kingdom whose authority is sourced in heaven. And there's only one king, and his name is Jesus. And he rules over all. And these men were obstacles to that. And, And Jesus explains part of the way in which there I've become obstacles in verse number 15. And I think why they were obstacles in verse number 14. And that's what we'll deal with this morning. Jesus is the king. And people who believe are the citizens of that kingdom. And there is a way to live. And again, folks, we, we understand this. We don't always like it. Right? You get pulled over by a police officer. Generally speaking, you're not going to get very far arguing to him that you didn't know what the speed limit was. He is going to adopt the position that as a citizen or a resident, you should know. And we know what the kingdom requirements are. And we know what the kingdom rules are. And we know what the king's expectations are. And we know that we're going to account for them. The Pharisees had closed and obstructed that way. Verse number 13, How are they doing this? They neither go in themselves nor suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They won't go in. They won't let anybody else go in. They are, folks, the equivalent of people standing in the middle of a doorway. And have you never noticed how doorways are magnets for stagnant traffic? There's just something about a doorway that when people get to it, they stop. And here are the Pharisees. And of course, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus himself is the door, He's the door. These men are obstructing the door to the kingdom. They obstruct the door when they question his very person. I'm just going to read you some verses. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. Let me just read you some passages. How how did they do this? How would I mean? It's not a physical thing, folks. I mean, it's not like you can open a map. You know, go to the AAA and go. I'd like a map of the kingdom of heaven, please. Let me get my bearings on this. Yes, there it is. The door is over there. 372 miles in any direction. How were they doing this? Their opposition to Jesus Himself. They questioned His person. John chapter nine and verse twenty-four. Then again, they called they the man that was blind and said to him, "Give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus Christ, is a sinner." Mark chapter two and verse seven. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Our city this morning is filled with Pharisee-like people. They won't go in, they won't let anybody else in, they won't go in the way. How do they do that? Well, Jesus is a good man, but He's just a man. hes He doesn't have a miraculous birth. You know, He has an illegitimate birth. That's standing in the way. That's standing in the way. They questioned his teaching. The entire passage, folks, of John 8, the back and forth, we be not born of fornication, we have a father, even Abraham, is a question about the nature and the authority of Jesus' teaching. Who are you and by what authority do you do these things? Who took, who gave you the right to preach these things? Right? And again, all over, all over our city, to go no farther than our little conservative city, our churches are filled this morning with men who are reading bible portions but saying well but it's you can't really trust it it's great literature maybe teaches a few moral principles but it's certainly not the authoritative word of god it's not a mandate upon man it's just a suggestion for how we ought, how they ought to live and since of course This is their pattern. We discover in verse number 15 that they are then zealous for their own religion. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, ye compass land and sea to make one proselyte, to get one convert. And when he is made, you make him twofold, more the child of hell than yourselves. You take a guy who was already not in, and you turn him into a Pharisee who now has the... Given task of keeping men out, and you are a twofold child of hell. Add to your unbelief your rabid opposition to Jesus Christ, and you have a Pharisee. I think, folks, that, by the way, and this just, these are A couple of things come to mind about churches like ours. If it is true that the main responsibility of a religious practice is to prepare people to enter the kingdom of heaven and to be a good citizen of Jesus Christ, then I think we need to think very carefully and move very slowly when it comes to things like political activism. Not that politics doesn't matter because it does. But because when a church gives itself to politics, it's very much in danger of losing the point of its existence. The same thing is true about patriotism. And I, I, I always deal with both of those subjects with great measures of guilt. I remember as a, as a young convert, our church, home church, had a track rack. Most people, most many churches do. And I still recall the, one of the tracks was a very fine-looking young man in a military uniform, and the caption was, will dying for your country take you to heaven? And even as a young convert, I thought, well, it sure ought to. It won't. And, and many good and godly people are great patriots, but many ungodly people are great patriots. My point is, folks, I'm, and I say this, I, I say this aware that some people really, they're very gracious, but they're very quietly disturbed that I don't do more politics or more patriotism. But we have... One task, one task when we come together, and that is to prepare men to meet God. And no matter how much time we dedicate to that publicly, and no matter what people think about the excessive amount of time it might be, four hours in the week, it is barely enough time to prepare people corporately to meet God. This is, this is the job. This is the the goal, by the way, of all religious service, of all religious activity, not just the pulpit, but of the choir and of the Sunday school, of the buses and of the Christian school and of the outreach in the youth department is to prepare men and women to meet God. And woe to any group of people in any time with any label who don't do that, who become obstacles by calling into question the person of Jesus Christ or the teaching of Jesus Christ, or even this, folks, and Jesus didn't touch on it, but it certainly has to be about of just simply ignoring Him so that they can deal with other matters. Pressing social concerns. We must always, always, always be careful of that. I think then in verse number 14, however, we have, I mean, we have certainly another woe. And, in the, and the passage, by the way, with the exception of verse number 14, the entire passage tends to combine these woes kind of sort of coupled together, pairing thoughts. They're not going in. They're not letting others go in because they are making proselytes to their own movement. They're zealous for this. I mean, folks, how else would you describe it but to compass land and sea to make a convert? To the ends of the earth to make a Pharisee who then clogs the way. He doesn't go in and he's an obstacle to others going in. Woe to them for that. I think then in verse number 14, we have another expose. Why if if a man and in this case by the way let me just narrow this because we're really not talking about paganism pure paganism we're not we're not talking about buddhism we're not talking about hinduism we're talking about judaism what is it that would bring together this Dynamic. A passionate, alleged commitment to the Bible and in reality, opposition to the God of the Bible. And I think we have the answer to that in verse number 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses... And for a pretense, make long prayer. For all of their alleged faithfulness to God, what really is driving them, they are viewing, folks, their religious practices, and this is going to come up again and again, I think, in this passage. Their religious practice is a means for them to make money. They view religion as a pathway to prosperity. Not a pathway to godliness, but a pathway to gold. They prey upon the religious inclinations of others for their own gain. They cloak their covetousness in religious practices. I mean, look at how Jesus exposed them. For a pretense, make long prayer. They don't love God. They're not trying to get anything from God. They're not trying to talk to God. They're not confessing anything to God. They just want to look religious. And why do they want to look religious? So they can get at the widow's gold. That's what Jesus means there. You devour widows' houses. Prey upon the women. They prey upon the weak. And folks, this is one of the problems inherent in many false religions. Let me again, you can turn to them because I'm going to take time to read to you eight or nine different Bible verses. This is a real problem. This is a real problem. And by the way, I point out it's a real problem for you and it's a real problem for me. And the reality is that in many ways money is probably more of a real problem for pastors than it is for anybody else in the church. God has much to say about this. Let me, for instance, Titus chapter 1 and verse number 11. Paul writes to Titus, and in this this is part of the explanation of why he left Titus. Titus, I'm going to leave you in Crete. It's not really where you want to be, but I need to leave you in Crete. He begins to talk about some of the people who are there. Titus 1.11, whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. They're teaching it for the cash. They're teaching it for the contribution. And Peter said to Titus, you gotta go out and put an end to that. You gotta cry out against that. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 17. Paul writes, For we are not as many. Not a few, Paul said, many. We are not as many that corrupt the word of God. And I don't know if you have a note in your Bible, but you need to be, what does Paul mean there? He means to sell it, to retail it, to peddle it. Words of God sold here. What would you like to hear? We are not, Paul said, as many. And then he went on to say, but we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God. See, for Paul, there was that never-escapable reality that God was really watching. I really try, folks, to come and stand in here and preach with the knowledge that God is listening. And that someday He and I are someday He and I are going to have a conversation about this sermon. And I mean no disrespect to any of you, but it far surpasses the importance of any conversation you and I will have about this sermon. This was the sin of Balaam. You read about Balaam in the book of Numbers. He gets a lot of mention. And you kind of walk away and you go, okay, where did Balaam fit in this? I mean, he was a bad guy with a good message. Bingo! Bingo! Jude, verse 11, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. This was Cain's problem. And ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Balaam wasn't attracted to preaching the message, but he was attracted to getting the prestige and the money that was being offered. This is, folks, again, this is a problem. And while you and I know, and even at times joke and mock about the fact that it is prevalent on the airwaves, we need to understand that it is much more insidious than just a few lunatic charismatics on a cable television network. There are people, Satan puts them up to this, they prey upon people, they offer them religious benefits in exchange for cash contributions. Woe unto them. Woe unto them. God is very concerned that His pastors, that His ministers do not act like that. Let me just read to you some passages that mention, that, that deal with this. And I mean, these are just right out of the qualifications for a New Testament pastor or deacon. 1 Timothy 3-3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. 1 Timothy 3-8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. First, or Titus 1 Titus seven. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. May I just sincerely express gratitude that to my knowledge it's never been the intention of anybody in this church To see that my wife and I lived in poverty. Can I just expand that by saying the Bible doesn't ever seem to know that notion either. Since the admonitions to the pastor are not. Son you're going to have to learn how to live in poverty. But son don't do this for the money that you can have. There must be some money available to keep telling me not to do it for the money. Not to do it for the money. 1 Peter 5.2 Feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre. God's got a real interest and a real concern about His ministers being too attached to money. We find Samuel at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, standing up in front of the representatives of the nation and saying, have I taken anybody's ox? I mean, now's the time to deal with it. Do I owe anybody money? Is anybody accusing me of thievery? I mean, it's, you know, all the cards are on the table now. That's, I mean, that's Samuel's position. It's not an accident, folks, that he concludes his ministry by an appeal to the verification of his honesty. In chapter 20 of Acts, Paul stands and discusses with the Ephesian elders. He says to them, this is goodbye. I will not see you again. We will not cross paths on earth. So I just want you to know that I haven't coveted your gold or your silver or your apparel. Why is that? Why Why would he make that kind of statement? Because, folks, there is an entire religious movement that is religious simply to get gold from somebody else. This is why, folks, it is imperative. It is imperative for you and it is imperative for me. And I think sometimes, honestly, that it is more of a challenge for me. Those of us who are pastors, who live with the reality that there are bills to pay, that there are lights. OPPD doesn't have a program that exempts churches. God could have but did not structure it in such a way that religious buildings do not deteriorate. There's a sense in which this thing is like a gargantuan house. There isn't a week goes by that there isn't something that ought to be fixed and you could walk up and down here and go, and some of you did, that needs to be repaired. That needs to be painted. And we do that the way that everybody else does. And it becomes very easy, folks. I confess this to you. It becomes very easy for a pastor to stand here and just look out along the crowd and see dollar signs. So we all need to come to an understanding about this. God is very clear. He doesn't need our money. He's not our debtor. He's not wringing his hands this morning. Hoping that the offering was sufficient to cover the week's needs. And we'll, we'll look at this because Jesus tackles that very subject of money specifically and places it within context of the framework. Does that then mean, this by the way will become a part of the ongoing dilemma as he talks to the Pharisees. Right? Not this extreme, but oh by the way, not that extreme either. If you would, let me just deal with this quickly. Folks, we need to understand this. We need to understand this as a church. I mean, I need to understand this as a pastor. You need to understand this as a parishioner. Philippians chapter four, that all giving is ultimately, turn if you would, I'll have you look at Philippians. We'll be done in just a moment. All giving is an act of worship. All giving is an act of worship. It is the right response to the sovereignty and the command of God. But it is not to enrich God's ministers or because God is needy. It is part of my maintaining my right standing before Him, my understanding of where I fit in things. Philippians chapter 4, very quickly. Verse number 14. And if you recall back a couple of years ago, we just spent some time kind of dealing with some of the major topics of Philippians. Philippians is a long thank you note. Right? You get a gift, you write a thank you note. Paul got a gift, he, wrote, he didn't write a thank you note, he wrote Philippians. Not bad. He is thanking them for their money. Verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. And by the way, in Paul's letters, particularly Philippians and Corinthians, Paul talks a lot about his own financial situation and the very real need that he has for money and the fact that he couldn't take money from the Corinthians because they didn't get it. They didn't understand it spiritually. And he says to them, I had to rob other churches like Philippi. The Philippians did get it. So thank you for taking care of my affliction. Verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Paul, how many churches support you? Well, the people in Philippi. Any other churches? No, just just the Philippians. Verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again to my necessity. Now remember folks, verse 17 is inspired. I, I would not claim with boldness such a sentiment. But Paul can. Not because I desire a gift. But I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. He's not talking about a gift of perfume that came along with the money. That's what the money is. When you read that little passage, folks, you discover that, that Paul makes three... Philosophical statements about an offering. Number one, when God's people give, that multiplies fruit in their own account. And the word that Paul uses there, may abound to your account, is actually the word superabound. Right? I mean, look, I I, I presume on any given Sunday that I, and I'm not trying to flatter you, that, that I am preaching to a rather sophisticated crowd Right? I mean, you're pretty well versed in the world. You're pretty well educated. You understand about money. You understand about return on investment. You're not interested in, in buying stocks that are collapsing or commodities that are declining. You're looking to make money. All right. This is, what, this is what God said. This is what God said through Paul. I desire that your return on the investment be incredible, super abounding. Superabounding. that's one of the philosophical statements Paul makes about money the second one is very practical and that is that the needs of others are met I got something from Epaphroditus I was in affliction you sent cash I bought groceries God bless you needs are met we would call this a win-win but there's another win there's a win-win-win situation here Paul won he needed money The Philippians won. This money was multiplied to their heavenly account. Number three, God won. God won. God is well-pleased. That's really what the last three words of your King James Bible in verse number 18 mean. Well-pleasing to God. God was happy with that. God was happy that the Philippians gave money to Paul so that he could buy groceries and clothes, so he could continue to minister in places like Thessalonica. Win, win, win. So there is, folks, a beautiful, spiritual, wonderful side to giving. But there is a corrupt side to it. The woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You devour widows' houses your obstacles to the kingdom of heaven, you're lining your pockets, you're you're seeking gain via your religion. What What a despicable, godless thing to do. Folks, the main objective of any religious endeavor, the main objective of a place like Westwood Heights is not to accumulate wealth. Certainly not to make me wealthy. But to prepare people to meet their God. And woe to any church that fails in the main task. Let's pray this morning.